chapter 1. James chapter 1, and then let's uh, read article 1, the Belgic Confession together. That is on page 70 in the blue hymnal. Sometimes you probably wish you had an extra pair of hands. Pastor Dan makes you keep too many things open at once. James 1. Just verse 17. James 1, 17. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Article 1 of our Confession of Faith, the Belgian Confession. Let's uh, read this article in unison and the whole thing. Let's read this together. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being which we call God and that he is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. As Christians, it's our responsibility to know what we believe and why to think about some of the the deeper questions of God's word and the deeper questions of our faith. Sometimes that means we have to deal with complex ideas This is uh, the task before us tonight. But with God's help, this will be a fruitful time. With God's help, he will reveal these truths to us. And our lives uh, will show forth the change he brings about in us because of it. We're going to mainly focus tonight on uh, the doctrine which we confess, which says that God does not change. One of the words we read there in Article 1, the Belgian Confession, we believe that God is immutable. That's what we're thinking about tonight. Immutable means God does not change. This has been a question, an issue that many theologians and thinkers and, and uh, biblical scholars have given themselves to, have dedicated years of studying it. We'll, we won't be able to give sufficient attention to all of the issues tonight, but hopefully we will provide a basis as to why we hold this doctrine as being true according to the witness of Scripture. So here's the main idea when we talk about an unchanging God, God who does not change. God does not change according to his essence, purpose, and promises. Because of this, we worship him in reverence, and we strive to obey him with an unwavering commitment to what he tells us is good and right. 
Since God is unlike us in the sense that he, he does not change, then we worship him in reverence, realizing that he is a God worthy of our praise. And we seek to be constant in the way that we obey him, because as we realize that we do change like shifting shadows, one day we may see the good, the value and the worth in obeying God and obeying his commandments, and the next day we might not see the good and the worth in doing such things. So what we must do is strive to be constant in obeying God, to emulate him in the way that he is so faithful to himself, to the way that he is so faithful to his promises and his purposes. We consider then this doctrine, uh, we will define it here in precision. What is immutability? What is an unchanging God. James 1, 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God is changeless. There is a perpetual identity of who God is without any adjustments. Nothing about who he is ever is adjusted at all. Whoever God is, that he is constantly. So God is changeless in his attributes. God is changeless in his attributes. His goodness cannot cease to be goodness. And his holiness cannot cease to be holiness. God is changeless not only in his attributes, but in his decree and his purposes and his promises. And when we talk about God being changeless in this way, many people might start to have this conception of God, of a God who is static a God who does not move at all, that does not do anything in terms of activity. And if that becomes their conception of God, people might say, well, hold on here. This sounds a lot like the God of Greek philosophy, the God of Aristotle, for instance. And it is, uh, it is true that at certain points, Christians have given definitions of this doctrine of an unchanging God that have sounded like that. For instance, here is one. Immutability is the perpetual identity of God and all his perfections. And then here's, and here, here's the rub. With the absolute negation of all motion, either physical or ethical, right? So ethical we understand. God does not change ethically. But the negation of all motion, people will say, well, if you read the Bible, it seems like God is very active. In his relation to his creatures, God is active in upholding the world. And if you talk about God as an unchanging God in the way that you define it, changeless in his attributes, changeless in his purpose and his promises, you almost think that sometimes it starts to sound like the way Aristotle, a non-Christian philosopher, described God. The fear here is a legitimate one, that God becomes the God of deism. Do we know what deism is? That God creates the world and then withdraws from it. God is kind of, he, he knocks down the first domino and then sort of lets everything else happen. He takes a step back and just observes it all, is very withdrawn from uh, the world. God becomes a, a distant watchmaker. So we have to hear this concern and make sure that, that we are not confessing that about God. And when we say God is changeless, it doesn't mean he is without activity. It doesn't mean that he is completely static. But it is what we see, the truth that is revealed to us in Scripture, that God is changeless. To return for a minute of the God of Aristotle, perhaps you've heard the phrase, the unmoved mover. 
This is the way uh, Aristotle conceived of God, aloof and static. Some people have also brought up the case to say, well, the Old Testament is, of course, written in Hebrew and in Aramaic, and so the Old Testament God is, is a Hebrew conception of God. The New Testament is written in Greek, and then uh, the first couple centuries of the church, most of the Christian thought was in Greek, and so people have posited that there is this difference between Hebrew thought and Greek thought. Hebrew thought being that God is more active and moving. Greek thought is the the God of Greek philosophy. He is static. He is unmoving. And that's uh, really, really untrue, right? There, There isn't this diversion between Hebrew thought and Greek thought. What we see in scripture is that God is unchanging and yet he is active. Unchanging and yet he is active. Take, for instance, Numbers 23, 19. It says this, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God does not lie. God does not change his mind. Malachi 3, chapter 3, verse 6 says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. See, what we need to understand is that indeed it is true that all change is an activity, but not all activity is change. When we go to the scriptures and we see that God acts, that God speaks, that God creates, that God upholds, this does not mean that God is changing. All change is an activity, not all activity is change. The unchanging God is a God who has not been moved or brought into being by another. When we say that God is unchanging, what we're saying is that there is no person, there is no force of nature that can act upon him to create or effect a change in him. It does not imply that God is completely static. It does not imply especially that God is incapable of relating to those outside of him. And that's very important to keep in mind. God does relate to those outside of him, particularly, namely, In his covenant, right? He relates to his people in and through his covenant. The verse before us in James chapter 1 is a perfect example of a God who is active and yet is revealed to us as an unchanging God, right? God is, in James 1.17, the father of lights. What does that refer to? God is the father of of the heavenly lights. It refers back to Genesis, doesn't it? Where God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Where God speaks the world, indeed the entire universe, into existence by the word of his power. He's the father of the heavenly lights with whom there is no change like shifting shadows. See, even as James realizes and looks back at Genesis and says God is the creator of all things, he says he is unchanging. So God can be active, God can create, God can uphold and sustain and still be an unchanging God. In this way, creation and providence are really very similar ideas. They are just different in name. God is constant and unchanging in his activity. He never stops acting and upholding the things that he has made. Nevertheless, even if this doctrine of an unchanging God is is not similar to the thinking of Aristotle. It's still thought that the witness of Scripture creates too many problems. There are too many passages, too many verses in the Bible where it says that God relents, or God changes what he is doing, or he discovers something that he didn't know before. 
And so people bring this uh, mindset to Scripture, and they say, if you look at all of these texts, all of these verses, it seems like you have a, a God who changes, not a God who is unchanging. So we need to realize how to answer a challenge like this. It's important to understand that in scriptures we have clear and absolute statements like James 1.17 that say that God is unchanging. He does not change. And then there are texts, sometimes very close to the same passages where it says God does not change, but there are texts where it says that God returns or God turns around or God changes or discovers something for the first time. We need to, be, we need to understand how to deal uh, with this issue. On the surface, some may say that you have the Bible asserting two different things that are contradictory. God is unchanging, and then there are these verses where it seems to say that God does change. Is this true? Well, no, of course it is not true. But then people are forced with a decision. They'll say, okay, you have this group of verses over here that say God doesn't change, this group of verses over here where it seems to say he does change, and so you just kind of weigh the evidence, and based on your conception of God, what you might think is true about him, you just kind of go with one or the other. And that's a very, that's a poor way to to think about doctrine. It's a poor way to confess what is in uh, the scriptures. It's not just a matter of choosing a side. What we must do is see how the Bible connects these two ideas. And here is how it does that, specifically related to the unchanging God. God is revealed to us in an unqualified manner as a God who does not change. And then, as he relates to his creatures, there are passages where the ways in which his relationship with his people is described varies according to the obedience of his people. So when you introduce the idea of human obedience and human rebellion, all of a sudden you have all these different descriptions of God relating to his people in different ways. So what we see then when we go to the Bible is that the change is a change in the creature, not in the creator, not in God himself. As God's people repent, return, and renew themselves to him, God, who is ever the same, can once again draw his people close to himself. Let me illustrate this for us by going to Malachi chapter 3, which I already mentioned. But in Malachi chapter 3 is very interesting because within the same passage, the course of two verses, uh, God is presented as unchanging and also willing to return to his people. I'll read Malachi 3 verses 6 and 7. It says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Does God then change when when he says that he will return to his people? A couple questions to consider. First, is God absent from Israel? Is God absent from Israel? No. In the Bible, the absence of God is one way that the Bible describes human alienation from God. Remember what we read in Psalm 139? If we ascend to the heights, God is there. If we make our bed in the depths, God is there. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is not absent from Israel. So when he's talking about returning, we need to understand this in a different way. 
And it's one way to describe human alienation from God. Human beings alienate themselves from God in their rebellion against him. Second question. Does God undergo an ethical change of some sort? No. The basis of this entire passage is that God does not change. For I, the Lord, do not change. He is constant in the way he is towards those who keep and those who do not keep his covenant. Israel is not consumed because of the promise of renewed communion with God in their covenant with him. A third question to consider. In human rebellion, as people rebel against God and disobey his commandments, does God discover things that he did not already know? For instance, the Garden of Eden. God is walking in the cool of the day, as we read in some of our English translations, walking through the Garden of Eden, and he's looking for Adam and Eve, and they're hiding from him. Does God not know what has happened? Or Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance. We read in the book of Genesis that the angel of the Lord goes down to Sodom to see what's going on down there. Is God discovering things that he does not already know? Does God punish in these situations like in Eden and Sodom and Gomorrah because he learns things about about his people uh, and as some sort of reactionary decision decides that's what he's going to do? Curse the world? Burn the city? No. That would mean that everything God does is a reaction to something. Psalm 139, which we read again, we'll return to it here. The psalmist says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And what does the psalmist say? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Isaiah chapter 46 says this. God speaking through the prophet. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And then he describes what he means by that. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. Here's the the bottom line of all this. We look at the evidence. And what we usually see in scripture. Is that any time. There is a change, turning around, a changing, a relenting, changing of his mind in God. It's actually predicated upon his changelessness. Somewhere close to that passage, you usually have a declaration of the fact that God does not change. So what we determine is that it is a constancy in God. God never changing, understood through a change in the relationship by a repentant creature. It all all has to do with God's creatures relating to him and their alienation from him. Uh, They're running away from him. And then eventually they're repenting and returning to him. But someone may say, okay, that's, uh, that's interesting in the Old Testament. But I know that God changes. And it's clear as day in the Gospel of John. John 1, uh, John chapter 1 verse 14 says what? The word became flesh. The word became flesh. Someone may say, when the second person of the Trinity became man, that was God becoming something that he was not before. 
How do we answer this? The problem of uh, the incarnation is something we need to consider when we confess the unchanging God. The text in John 1.14 does, in fact, state this. The word became flesh. At least that's how most of our English translations uh, deal with this. Doesn't this show that God can become something that he was not? This is not, of course, a new problem. The early church fathers were dealing, that, were dealing with this from the earliest days of the church. This has been a central challenge. And the early church fathers always answered by saying that the divine nature and the Godhead experience no change. That's important to understand, isn't it? Because when we talk about God never changing, what are we talking about? We are saying that his essence, his nature, the divine nature, never undergoes any change. And so here's the way we talk about the second person of the Trinity becoming man. We say that the divine nature of the second person of the Godhead assumed a human nature into the unity of his person. When Jesus Christ becomes man, he assumes a human nature in a way that does not dismiss who he has always been, in a way that does not change anything about his divine nature. His divinity does not convert into flesh. His divine nature does not mix and meld together with the human nature. We'll take, for instance, the Athanasian Creed, which, uh, which we looked at part of it tonight and professed it together. It goes on to say this about Jesus Christ. Although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. Not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God, one altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. See, the second person of the Godhead assumes a human nature into the unity of his person, but it changes nothing about his divine nature. We also have to consider, if we're thinking about uh, whether or not the incarnation presents a problem with this idea of an unchanging God, you have to consider that the incarnation was God's plan from the beginning. It was always God's plan to send his son, and that his son, true God, true man, would become salvation for his people. This was his eternal purpose. We read this in Ephesians chapter 1. The apostle Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And he says this, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, the eternal purpose of God's will, election itself uh, happens in Christ. God has chosen us in Christ to be purified and blameless in Christ. That was God's plan from the beginning. In other words, the incarnation, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, all of that existed in the decree of God from all eternity. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, it says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This was always God's plan. But he was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. Acts chapter 4, the apostle Peter speaking shortly after the ascension and Pentecost says this, Truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, it says this, to do whatever your hand and your plan 
had predestined to take place. God's plan was always to send Jesus. And exactly how it unfolded in the life of Jesus is exactly what God had decreed. Revelation chapter 13 says that the Lamb was slain from the creation of the world. And so if, the, if, the, uh, if Jesus coming and assuming human flesh, if that were to create a problem, what someone would have to say is that there is this hidden purpose in God which is not revealed to us in Scripture, which was that God would send his Son to earth in order that the, the divine nature could change somehow. And we just don't have that in Scripture. In fact, we have the exact opposite. It was the eternal purpose of God to send his Son. The Gospel of John gives us an interesting way to think about this. We read in the Gospel of John that in the days of his flesh, Jesus is seen as a man, right? People look at Jesus and what do they see? A human being, a true man. But in those days, certain aspects of his power are visually laid aside. And so there becomes sort of this, this challenge in the Gospel of John. This challenge is put to everyone who sees Jesus and who hears his teaching. Jesus reveals the truth of who he is, and the challenge put to those around him will be, I am clearly a man, but will you believe me when I tell you that I am more than just a man? I am also the divine Son of God. Remember, John writes his gospel at the end, and he says, all of these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That you may believe what? That Jesus is divine. That Jesus is not just man. That Jesus is God and man. Jesus is the very Son of God. But let's tie some of these things together and make some conclusions before we end tonight. So when we say that God is unchanging, this does not mean that he is a static God. Stiff and unmoving. Inactive. Unable to relate to his people. He is always acting. He is always upholding. He is always saving. And he is in dynamic covenant with his people. All three persons of the Trinity joined together in this endeavor, this eternal purpose of God to seek and to save the lost, to keep his people until the end. But he is unchanging in his essence, in his purpose, and in his promises. Remember, not all activity means a change. Just because God is active, it does not mean he is changing. If we lose this doctrine, this, this classical doctrine of God, which faithful Christians have professed for centuries, if we lose this doctrine, we also lose uh, the doctrine that God is all-knowing. We also lose the doctrine that God is all-powerful. If there can be forces that act upon God to effect a change in him, uh, then God is not all-powerful. If God discovers things that he didn't already know, then God is not all-knowing. So this doctrine, the unchanging God, is the basis for God's trustworthiness. How can you trust God? How can you know that you can trust him? When he says that we need to trust him, how do we know that he is trustworthy? It's trustworthy because he's an unchanging God, because he is steadfast in his love, because he is faithful in his promises, because he is constant in his purpose. If God could change his purpose, if God could relent, change his mind, couldn't it be that God could change what he had done about salvation? Couldn't it be that he could change his mind about how he had saved us? 
But the great comfort of the Christian life, brothers and sisters, is that God will never repent. He will never recant on his redemptive purposes for us. God wills at all times to be exactly, precisely who he is. There are things that God will not do. Indeed, there are things that God cannot do. There are silly sort of philosophical discussions. Can, is there anything that God cannot do? Can he make a, a, a stone too big for him to move? Can he make a thousand angels dance on the, the head of a needle? Things like this. But we know in scripture that there are things that God cannot do. He will never be unrighteous. He will never be untruthful. He will never be unfaithful to his promises. Because God acts according to his revealed character. And this is why the doctrine of the unchanging God becomes a basis in the Christian life for piety and for reverent worship. Becomes a basis for piety because when we see the unchanging God, when we see the second person of the Godhead who assumed humanity into his person, who walked this earth, who suffered for us, it compels us to do what? It compels us to take up our cross. When we read in the scriptures, take up your cross and follow Jesus. We are compelled to do that because we see that that is what the unchanging God did for us. In Jesus, we see that God is with us and that God is for us. God is with us and God is for us. In fact, the unchanging nature of Jesus is uh, revealed to us in the book of Hebrews. And it's revealed to us in the middle of an exhortation to be like Christ, to imitate the leaders that are around you. We read in Hebrews 13, 7 and 8, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then it says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same yesterday, today, and forever. This is a mystery. There are in some ways that we cannot fully grasp it. We understand a part of it. We profess what the Bible reveals to us about it. But we cannot fully comprehend it. Remember in Article 1 of the Belgic Confession, one thing about God is that he is incomprehensible. We'll never fully and exactly and perfectly understand and comprehend him. But that provides us with the sound basis for what? For reverent worship. The unchanging God provides a basis for piety taking up our cross as we see the unchanging God doing that, going and walking this earth and suffering for us. This mystery also provides us with a sound basis for reverent worship. We cannot fully understand the unchanging God. We cannot fully understand the unchanging God assuming human flesh. There is a paradox here. But in this, uh, in this paradox, we worship God with thankfulness and reverence. For without the unchanging God assuming flesh, there would not be other things that are fully true, although they seem paradoxical. Other things about our salvation that seem paradoxical. Death transformed into life. Paradoxical. Corruptible, becoming incorruptible. It seems impossible that through death life would be given, yet that is how God has chosen to do it. To grant eternal life through death. Both in Jesus' life and death, and in the life and death of his people. Our mortal flesh becomes immortal because the unchanging God did not waver in accomplishing his purposes to save us through death, through our mortality, through our flesh. God willed to save us that way. And thankfully, he never changed his mind because we serve and we worship an unchanging God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
And we thank you for these deep truths. We know this is, in many ways, difficult to, to, to tackle a lot of these ideas. But Father, we thank you for the opportunity to set aside time to look at your word and to think about these things. Father, if nothing else, impress upon our hearts how important it is to think about these things. How important it is to learn about you and to grow in our knowledge. Father, give us faith as we seek understanding. Help us to always hold these, these doctrines as, uh, as so valuable and important to us. Father, even if we don't fully grasp it, even if we're struggling to understand some of the, even the basic concepts of it, Father, impress upon our hearts that it is so important uh, for us to strive, uh, to strive to know more and to strive to learn about you. We thank you for the doctrinal heritage that we have, uh, that you have given to us. And uh, we thank you that as we strive to understand it better, that we would understand new and imaginative ways how to apply all of this knowledge that we have in a world that is always changing. How glorious it is that you are not changing. And so, Father, we pray that the ministry of the gospel might increase as we dig deeper into these doctrines. And may you make uh, these times fruitful as we think about them together as revealed in your word. We pray these, all, all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we...